All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Got your Money Wise guys back inside the Money Wise studio with me for this weekend show. I have my brother Jeff, Joe Rust, and I am your host, Kyle Davidson. For any new listeners to the Money Wise program, Davidson Capital Management is a fee-only registered investment advisor. With our 35th year of business and with offices in San Antonio and Corpus Christi, we have your investment management needs covered throughout Central and South Texas. And if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Tuesday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. As we kick off every weekend's Money Wise program, I turn it over to my brother Jeff to go into the numbers from Wall Street from this past week. So, Jeff, take it away. Okay, in the week just passed, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up about 304 points, or eight-tenths of 1%. The S&P 500 last week was up a little more than 15 points, or three-tenths of 1%. And the NASDAQ last week was up about 18 points, or one-tenth of 1%. So we finished... The month of December, the fourth quarter in the year. Let's go into those numbers real quick. For the month of December, the Dow and the S&P up almost 5%, 4.8 and 4.4% respectively. And the NASDAQ was up 5.5% in the month of December. For the quarter, an excellent quarter, the Dow was up 12.5%. The S&P 500 was up 11.2% for the fourth quarter. And the NASDAQ was up 13.6%. For the fourth quarter. And finally, now that we've finished year 2023, the Dow was up 13.7%. The S&P 500 for the year was up 24.2%. And the NASDAQ for 2023 was up 43.4%. All of these statistics do not include dividends. So you could add a percent and a half or so to the Dow and the S&P for dividends. Um, NASDAQ, not so much, but I think, Kyle, we had talked about this before the radio show started, that this is the second best year for the NASDAQ this century, only behind the recovery oh, year 2003 after the multi-year bear market in the NASDAQ, when the NASDAQ that year was up just a little over 50%. So we weren't that far behind um, for performance for the NASDAQ uh, in 2023. Uh, I think it's we talked about this two weeks ago um the market's performance for the year exceeded all of our expectations um mine being the lowest expectation i think Kyle's mine being the, the highest at 16 percent it exceeded yeah, I was right that. in the middle as usual so. <laughs> just like in the office and on the radio show and on your prediction, Joe. I am Switzerland sometimes in this establishment. And before we disappoint everyone, 
with our, you know, tell everyone our predictions for next year. We're not going to be doing them this show, ladies and gentlemen. We're gonna we're gonna do those next week, and maybe maybe we can get uh, Dad to come on and get maybe give us his predictions. Uh, he he would he would definitely want would not be showing his his bearish stripes this week. Uh, to talk about what happened in 2023 because he was certainly more bearish than all of us. Wait, uh, isn't he washing his bear coat for this weekend show? I think that's what he's doing. He's washing his bear coat. So. He may just be. That's why I couldn't make the show. I, I he said know. hibernation. He may just be. Okay. But, but here's here's a here now, now, now the fact that the performance of the of the stock market, whatever index you want to look at, exceeded all of our expectations. Another interesting statistic for the year is the 10-year Treasury yield. And at the end of 2022, the 10-year Treasury yield was 3.88%. At the end of 2023, the 10-year Treasury yield was 3.86%. If you round it off, 387 and the peak was a, uh, a hair over, over five. Was at 5% intraday. Mm-hmm. I think it was in October or maybe it was no, early November. I don't remember exactly. It never closed at a 5% yield, but it did trade uh, at, a, at a, a, a above 5% yield briefly on one day. Now, would, uh, would any of us have predicted that for the 10-year Treasury this year, that we, we end exactly the same way as we did the previous year? No. That's pretty. That's Negative. pretty amazing. I mean, I don't know how many times has that ever happened in market history, where the yield on probably the most tracked uh, bond in the marketplace, because the ten-year Treasury is is basically the, one of the building blocks of the termination of mortgage rates. How it could be exactly the same at the end of the year, but but then again. How do we go from where we were at the end of the summer to 5% in, like, less than 90 days, 5% yield? And right back and, to where and, we started. And run, it, and run it right back down uh, less than – well, less than 90 days later. I think we have, like, 60-some-odd days. I mean, well, what about the what about the Dow, Jeff, pretty much making almost its entire year in the last 90 days of this year? Yeah, True. Santa Claus yeah, was, was alive for the last two months of the year. It, it, well, and, 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 and making an all-time high. And making an all-time high for the Dow, the Dow in the same up, time period. Dow was up 1.2% going into the quarter and then ended up the year 137 And, yeah, the Dow's at all-time highs. The, NAS, the S&P closed about 1% below its all-time high, and the NASDAQ has about 7.5% to go. Uh, no, I mean none of us had any. I mean, you. I was rereading my third third quarter comments, getting ready to write the fourth quarter comments. This certainly wasn't something that 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 we force we could foresee uh, as we were you know predicting what the what the fourth quarter would look like. Um, sentiment has definitely shifted strongly uh, back to uh, a. There's a rate-cutting bias in uh, 2024. Yeah, Kyle. One other thing I want to point out, since we're talking about 
all these statistical numbers is I was looking at the equally weighted S&P 500 index exchange traded fund symbol RSP. And according to my calculations through Friday's close, without including dividends, the RSP is going to end 2023 up 11.33%, meaning it's performing less than half than what the S&P 500 market cap weight did for 2023. And this, I think, will be the biggest difference in performance between an equally weighted and market cap weighted S&P 500 index in its history, I believe, or close not, to. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I mean, it's definitely in the top five. I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. You'll stop there, so we'll take our first break. We'll continue the show after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after the break. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Tuesday to discuss your personal financial situation, Take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys. You can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning in this weekend's Money Wise program, continuing to recap the happenings of Wall Street from this past week, into the quarter, into the month, into the year, end of 2023 is in the books and what a year it was. Wanted to make one quick correction. I was talking about the RSP, which is the equally weighted S&P 500 index exchange traded fund, actually ended 2023 up 11.72%. But as I was saying before we went to the commercial break, this its performance was less than half of that of the market cap weighted S&P 500 index. And again, it's all going to be laid to the feet of, you know, part of the magnificent 7 and the meteoric rise these stocks had, but there was a lengthy list. Joe, I know you sent a, a, an email, you emailed me a list on Friday of some of the top-performing stocks this past year, and some of those stocks were not part of the Magnificent Seven but had some fantastic uh, returns this past year. Um, but it, but again, go ahead, Jeff. The dominance of the mega-cap tech names appears to have ended at the end of the third quarter. And the reason I say that is because the performance of the equally weighted S&P versus the market cap S&P was statistically nearly identical in the uh, uh, fourth quarter. And if you run it back, if you run back the equally weighted and the S&P market cap weighted, say, back 34 years when we first uh, started doing business, uh, the difference between the two is less than eight-tenths of a percent compounded. So over the long, 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 long term, the typic, you know, there's not a lot of statistical difference. But I will, I will agree with you that you know, not going, and I haven't had anybody you know, put this statistic out, but my guess would be that the outperformance of the uh, market cap-weighted S&P 500 this year versus the equally weighted it's got to be in, in the top one or two um, of that statistic going back to whenever they started keeping them. And I don't know if they started keeping them in the 1950s or when it was. Uh, 
which leads me to my to kind of a prediction, an early prediction for next year, <clears throat> and that is that it given how much those mega cap names outperform this year, it would seem to me a very low statistical probability that those same set of stocks would outperform the market to the extent that they did this year in 2024. Agree to the extent. Well, I would say to the extent, maybe not to the, maybe not to the, uh, the the high level of outperformance they had this year, but that doesn't mean that they still can't outperform the overall market because, you know, artificial intelligence, which is really one of the big drivers for these magnificent seven stocks, it's just in its infancy. I mean, it is just starting to come out and appear and start driving in revenue. And so I think we have a very long road to hoe when it comes to AI technology and the types of revenues and the types of dollars it's going to bring to the bottom line of these companies that are involved in it. Uh, so I know, you know, one of the themes that a lot of analysts were talking about is trying to find those kind of diamond in the rough companies that aren't exactly known for artificial intelligence, but that are going to be using it to, of course, become more efficient and more profitable. Um, you know, I know one stock in particular in our portfolio is Old Dominion Freight Line using artificial intelligence to become more efficient as far as getting their trucks on the road, keeping their costs lower, and leveraging that technology. Well, there's a lot of other companies that will be able to leverage AI technology as it continues to develop. And so you're not exactly buying these companies for AI, but maybe what they could use AI for to expand their profit margins and, and put more money on their bottom line when it comes to their balance sheet. Well, if, if you look at the top 10 winners in the S&P, and I'm not going to go over them, unless you're a really good stock picker, you probably would have missed them because probably four out of the 10, I would not label as a tech company. Okay, so they are out there. There are opportunities to go buy good quality stocks that aren't the Magnificent Seven. You just need to know how to do your own research. And, uh, I mean, I'll mention a couple of them. Well, we don't own them, so I won't talk about them. But what I'm getting at is there's a couple of builder stocks in there. So it's not always going to be about tech if you know what to look for in, in, uh, from a stock uh, an analysis uh, point of view. But uh, the well, other thing I want to point that. out. Go ahead, Joe. No, I'll let you finish that. I had one more point I wanted to make about another sector that we don't talk about very often that still the S&P is beating. But go ahead, Kyle. Well, no, go ahead. What sector well, is that? One other thing I was looking at is the international index and the MSCI, uh, including emerging markets, still didn't hit 20%. And you look at where the S&P is. So if you're looking at your portfolio at the end of the year and you're what they call a, a portfolio that's utilizing modern portfolio theory and you're 15 to 20, 20% international, you kind of got to ask yourself why, especially if you're paying a fee to a money manager to have you in the international indexes. So that's the other thing that I looked at well, at the end of the year as well. Yeah, and unfortunately for all of our listeners that are working with the big legacy distribution firms, you know, more sales firms as opposed to asset management firms that utilize computers, algorithms, and Monte Carlo theories or modern portfolio theory, you're going to see, you're going to continue to see that 15 to 20% overseas exposure. You know, because, again, they're relying on non-humans to manage money just based on statistics, based on long historical statistics, you know, as opposed to using experience. Okay, let me give you some long historical experience about emerging markets from a performance (laughs) point of view. So this year, this is through Thursday. I don't have Friday's numbers. We'll just round it off 
the MSCI Emerging Market Index, just price only index, was up seven percent through Thursday. Probably didn't change much with Friday. But what do you think its thirty-four year compounded rate of return is? Four point seven percent. Emerging markets, four point seven percent compounded rate of return. The S and P is over ten over that same time period. Now we've owned emerging markets, we've owned international in our portfolios at various times over the last thirty-four years because we just completed year thirty-four here at Davidson Capital Management, and I can tell you that over we have never we have not owned an international emerging market investment continuously for thirty-four years. We've owned it, you know, for a year or two. We had an emerging market. Uh, ETF, I believe, I believe it was this year. It was, it was an ETF. We sold it earlier this year at a loss. And I and Kyle and I, I said kind of privately to Kyle, you know, I look at these long-term performance numbers of emerging markets, and to me, it looks like some. It's just a trading vehicle. It's not something you can necessarily be in for the long term. Because look what it's done long term. It really just hasn't done very much. I think cash might beat. This long-term emerging markets number, I think I know bonds does over that same time period. The aggregate bond number is over 5% over those 34 years. That's aggregate. Yeah, that's all maturity levels. So, yeah, Kyle. Well, and I just wanted to add that, you know, the methodology and the thought process, since we are actual money managers at Davidson Capital Management, you know, the original idea of why we started building a position in the emerging markets beginning at the beginning of the, at the start of this year was an anticipation that because China was staying locked down for so long that there was going to be a ton of stimulus that was going to be coming into their economy, which was going to help them uh, really start to recover. Well, unfortunately, that didn't happen. And because we do things very slowly and methodically, we had a very small allocation of that position. And when we, it really came to fruition that the Chinese government was not going to be stepping up and the, this position was underperforming, we decided to go ahead and sell it because we felt it was dead money and those dollars could be utilized elsewhere more productively. But this is the key to active asset management is Having, you know, doing the research, doing the determination to make a decision in a portfolio, move into that position, you know, doing it uh, very methodically, but then also backtesting it and to make sure that it's actually doing something. You know, why are you putting something in your portfolio? Is it just to say, well, this, this, this computer algorithm says that based on my risk tolerance from this questionnaire that my broker asked me to fill out, I need to have this much in emerging markets and international. And so I'm just going to set it, forget it, and just let the passive investment strategy that most of the legacy distribution systems have been following for the past decade plus do while you're underperforming and continuing to hold an underperforming asset class or what we consider dead money. Or do you work with portfolio managers that have processes, experiences of being in the trenches that are putting a position in the portfolio from their experience, realizing, you know what, this position just isn't really working that well. We need to get it out and, and redistribute those assets somewhere else where they could be more productive. That's active asset management. Well, I brought it up because it's a very major asset class that we don't talk a lot about, but it's in everybody's statement. You know what I mean? They, when we do portfolio, portfolio reviews, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. 
And, and, and as soon as we see it, we know a telltale sign that this is being done by modern portfolio theory or Monte Carlo analysis that all the legacy distribution systems now use because passive active management, passive asset management is the name of the game for those firms, unfortunately, this day moving forward. Well, let's take our next commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Tuesday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at one 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning in this weekend's MoneyWise program, um, just in the last segment, I, I guess we. Joe, I guess you said we had to, I don't want to say throwing under the bus. I mean, we're just telling it like it is. I mean, the things that we see when we do portfolio reviews and analysis and when we see it coming from any of the major legacy distribution systems, basically any name brand uh, firm that you can think of from Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, Prize, Ed Jones, you know, we typically see the same trends. It's just a shotgun blast of a bunch of mutual funds and exchange-traded funds in a portfolio that is just, you get to the point of over-diversification with a smattering of a few handful of stocks, no real rhyme or reason from a portfolio uh, investment management philosophy, and just in hopes that something sticks and just set it and forget it and just let things run. You know, we've seen two-star mutual funds, three-star mutual funds. And, you know, occasionally you'll see a four- or five-star fund in there. Um, but, again, it's this passive strategy. And we've, we've talk, been talking about this going back 19 years on the Money Wise program, and we're continuing to see it. You know, obviously another big trend, and, Joe, I know one of our most uh, recent clients in San Antonio, uh, classic case in point. Well, I'm working with a fiduciary registered investment advisor. Okay, that's great. Well, then you start digging into their ADV part two, and what do you find? They utilize a third-party money manager. And so they're collecting your assets, turning them over to somebody else to manage on your behalf that you have zero relationship with that's going to charge you a fee. And then the firm that you're working with that's basically just managing the relationship with you is also charging you a fee. And in this particular new client's instance, could be charged up to 2% in management fees because they got to cover their overhead to manage the relationship. And then the money manager who's actually making the investment decisions has to cover their overhead for managing the money. So this is, again, another trend that we've been seeing more and more over the last, really, 10 years. And what we see a lot of times is traditional folks on the sales side of the business that have worked for these you know, legacy distribution firms decide, hey, I'm going to go hang my own shingle. And I'm going to become an RIA, registered investment advisor. And I'm going to call my, you know, I'm going to be a fiduciary. But I'm still not going to manage the money. I didn't manage the money when I was at Ed Jones or, or at Dane Rauscher. I didn't manage it at Merrill. So why am I going to now call myself a registered investment advisor and start managing money? I don't know how to manage money. I'm going to turn it over to somebody else. 
and I'm just going to keep managing the relationships like I was doing, but just collect a bigger haul on, on management fees. You know, this is what you have to understand as, as an individual client, as an investor. You have to dig deeper. As I've said from day one on this Money Wise program, going back to 2005, you have to dig deeper. Don't take things for face value. The first question you should ask with anyone you're thinking about working with, do you manage the money in-house? Should be your first question every time. And get that answer. Then okay. what are your fees? Then what are what are my fees? No, 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 no. no. After you, I, I'm sorry. What's your we'll track record? In a That's, thank you for stealing my thunder there. <laughs> after they tell you, after they tell you, yes, we manage the money here. Okay, show me your five year track record. Show me your ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty five, thirty, thirty four year track record. Show me that. Since you hung your shingle out, not what you did at the other firm. I'm talking about since you hung your shingle out. Then you'll – and don't show me the performance of the people that you're going to be shifting the money over to. I want your – what did you – what was your performance? Well, that's if they answer the question, yes, I manage the money in-house. But I'll tell you that there's one thing that you that can be guaranteed of. If your money is being shifted to someone else that's managing the money – I guarantee you the fees that you're paying are far more than you would pay if you just hired the people actually managing the money. And as you know, what Kyle was expanding a little bit on what Kyle's talking about is it seems to seems to me that fewer and fewer of these registered investment advisory firms are actually managing the money. And mm-hmm. and they're and they're just shifting it off to someone else that you don't have a relationship with. I, I do want to Point something out too. There's managing the managers, and I've, we're seeing a lot of ETF portfolios now. We're in, and a lot of the people that are managing the managers, or they're calling themselves an, if they're an RIA. How many of them? And now we have people that have, we have clients that have stocks, we have clients that have ETFs, but we do actually do go in and actually buy our own stocks and do our own research on our own stocks. And Kyle and I. Not so much Jeff, but know a lot of people in the industry that are wholesalers that call on different RIAs. And less than 10%, according to them, of RIAs out there actually pick their own stock. So even ask them, hey, there's a stock in this portfolio. What was your research and what was involved in picking that one particular stock? If they can't give you an answer, then there you go. But that is your answer. That should so, be the question mark. Well, and here's something else. And here's something else. Even on That's what I'm saying. Even on the exchange-traded funds, they have to be vetted. They have to be researched, just like the exchange-traded funds that we own and all of our portfolios as part of our index base. You know, they're in there for a particular reason because they're, they revolve around a particular investment management philosophy and style that we have instituted in the own, in our own individual stocks that we have picked for our clients that are in that type of portfolio. Yeah, Jeff. So, this predates before you guys even got into the business, probably when y'all were in high school and I was in my first five years. Those are the days. Here, here <laughs> in the business. When there were only three, there were only a couple, a handful of ETFs. There was the Diamonds for the Dow, the Spies for the S&P 500, and the Qs for the NASDAQ. And our portfolios that were under a million dollars were all invested in mutual funds. We didn't own any ETFs. The exchange-traded funds maybe found their way into our larger accounts, but not that often. And as the years, as the decades went by, 
um, we have gotten away from really owning mutual funds. And we haven't, we haven't even owned a mutual fund in our client portfolios now, approaching two years, if my uh, memory serves me correctly. And there's a reason why. And the reason why is, is because these ETFs, exchange-traded funds, have had an opportunity to demonstrate their performance. And, and, and the fee structure on the ETFs is so much better than it is for you know, the vast majority of mutual funds. Their fee structures, in my opinion, are outrageous. You, know, you take a 4 or $5 billion mutual fund that, say, owns 100% stocks, and they're still charging over 100 basis points to manage $5 billion or more. I mean, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me from a, from a expense ratio, from an expense point of view. And, and as we have said time and time again, the easiest way to improve the performance of anyone's portfolio is to reduce the expenses. So you get away from the guys that say they manage money, that they, but they don't, that are charging you 2% or more. And I got an example that's even higher than that, approaching 3 Um, you get away from those people and you're immediately going to pick up hundreds of basis points, multi-percents in return just by getting away from folks like that. The other thing is that if their portfolio is full of proprietary mutual funds, meaning or or mutual funds where they have a financial relationship, and we've we've harped on the Ed Joneses and the Ameriprises of the world, and that's just to name a few, that have these these relationships where the mutual fund companies pay them to have their mutual funds in your portfolio, you go look at the expense ratios of those mutual funds, and you put in 12B1 fees on top of it, you got fees on top of fees on top of fees, which means lower and lower and lower performance. The other thing about owning ETFs is there's now we can buy and sell them for no transaction fee whatsoever. There's still mm-hmm. some transaction fees on mutual funds that you have to take into consideration, not on every one of them. And the other thing is the intraday tradability of the exchange-traded funds versus mutual funds. You can't, you can't sell a mutual fund during the day. It only gets whatever the end-of-the-day price is, that's what you get. Now, this may sound like, well, are we never going to buy another mutual fund in our client portfolios ever again? I'm not here to sit here today and say that. But I don't necessarily think that our portfolio's performance has suffered at all by us not owning those mutual funds. And I remember one mutual fund right off the top of my head, that T. Rowe Price fund that we owned. At Blue the chip. End of, Blue chip growth. The end, of, the end of 2021, if I'm not yep. mistaken. That's and correct. Was, and I was going nuts over how how uh, how out concentrated of, how, it was. How concentrated they were in these big cap names. And I said, look, we can't own a portfolio that owns 40-some-odd percent of it in the top 10 stocks, and they're telling me they want me to approve them to be non-diversified. We don't, we, don't invest in, we don't invest in non-diversified investments. We sold that thing, and it was down like 40% in 2022. It probably had a great year in 2023. That's not really the point. They weren't but to your numbers, probably still negative, though. Yeah, I have a feeling they're to your number, probably still negative. Probably. But you know, the point is, is that, like Kyle says, you got to look deeper. Look deeper into those numbers. Because if you've got a portfolio that's full of mutual funds, 
you got to look at those expenses and how you know are, are are those are those managers earning those fees and those mutual funds? Okay. Well, let's take another commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call at our office on Tuesday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from you Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at one 800 275 2162 if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So in our last segment of the first hour of this weekend's MoneyWise program, and being this is our last show, uh, our last MoneyWise show for 2023, and we've got the New Year's, Coming up uh, on Monday, I think we could use this section as New Year's resolutions for all of our listeners, for all investors out there, some things they should know, things that they should be thinking about when it comes to their portfolio. So I don't know where you guys want to start. If we want to talk about some of the adjustments, well, let's just talk about adjustments to IRA contributions, whether it's a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA for 2024. The base uh, contribution maximum for anyone under the age of 50 is moving up a thousand bucks to seven thousand dollars, and if you're over the age of 50, you can contribute eight thousand dollars into your either traditional or Roth IRA. Now, for your Roth IRA, you have to make sure you're below the income limits uh, to be able to make that Roth contribution, um, which is also adjusting for next year. Um, and I can just give that real quick. For a Roth, let's see, you have to be below $230,000 modified adjuster gross income married filing jointly to make a contribution to a Roth IRA in 2024. Joe, I know you've got the 401k contribution limits because those have also are going to be increasing in 2024. And so I would say that part of the New Year's resolution you should make is increasing contributions to your 401k in the new year. As we have said from day one on the Money Wise program, pay yourself first, and this is definitely a way to do it. You know, bump up your contribution a percent, maybe two. Heck, if you can afford a 5% increase, take advantage and do it. Sure. You go, to, you go to the maximum, do it. Go to the maximum. Yeah, and what, and, and what are the maximums, Joe, for 2024 for a 401k? Sure, if, if you're it's $23,000, and then the catch-up provision, if you're over 50, is an extra 7500 So if you're over 50, you could put up to 30500 and it could be traditional or Roth. So Kyle talked about income limits that might prevent you from putting money into a Roth IRA. Um, you know, that that's when you could look at your if you have a Roth provision in your 401K, and you can participate that way. But I, I always say don't forget the Roth in a 401K. There's multiple people that we know that are business owners uh, or individuals, and when you hit 60, 65, heck, you take $50,000 out of a 401K to buy, I mean, you can't even buy it at Ford F-250 for fifty grand. That might kick you up into a higher tax bracket. So make sure you're doing your planning up front, know what you want to spend during retirement, have a rough idea, and, and start planning accordingly if you haven't done that already. 
So. Well, and, I, and I just wanted to add something on the Roth 401k contribution, because like you were saying, Joe, when if you're participating in a 401k that has a Roth 401k contribution option, there are no income limitations. And so you could be making well over the income maximum where you could not add money or contribute money to a Roth IRA, but for the Roth 401k contribution, it doesn't matter how much you make. And so going into retirement, having two different pools of assets to draw from with assets coming out of a Roth IRA completely tax-free versus a traditional IRA where it's taxed as ordinary income, if you retire and have those two buckets, a Roth and a traditional, you keep your traditional tax deferred as long as humanly possible until you hit your required minimum distributions, which under current laws, now 73 years old, possibly going to 75 in the future. I know it's being kicked around by Congress. But then you would be drawing your monthly income from that Roth bucket completely tax-free. So, you know, you got to take advantage of that if you have that option. And if your 401K doesn't have that option, your plan sponsor has a fiduciary duty to you as the plan sponsor and participant. So ask your plan administrator, why do we not have a Roth 401k contribution option? As one of my old marketing professors used to say, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. So you got to squeak if you don't have that option. So make that a New Year's resolution. Increase your 401k contributions. I would say the second resolution, and Joe, you've been saying this from day one since you joined the Money Wise you know, crew many years ago. Know what you own. Know what you own. Review your portfolio. Do not become complacent because markets had a great year. And if you had a 50, 60, 70% allocation to the right asset classes in 2023, you had a really good, solid return. Don't get complacent. Don't just let it be sitting there and forget. You have to know what you own and understand why you own it. So don't be complacent. Get that portfolio review and analysis. So that'd be resolution number two. Yeah. And here's here's a, here's another. Sorry, Jeff. Here's another third Jeff resolution. A, uh, okay. Well, I, he might not think about this because we were talking about it earlier. New Year's resolution number three. Understand how much you're paying on an annual basis in management fees for whoever it is that you're working with. Have that full, complete transparency and know what you're paying. The only thing I was going to expand a little bit on what Kyle said is that if you had a if you had a bad year in 2022 and you were considering making a change of advisor in 2023 and just never got around to it, and then next thing you know, you look up and you see that you had a really good year this year. And and now you forget. Now you just decide. Well, okay, we recovered from 2022, so everything's all right. Well, not necessarily. I mean, you could be 80, 90 percent invested in stocks and not even realize it. And if you're like in your late 60s or early 70s, that is not an appro- appropriate allocation for an investor at that stage of life. And you know, finding all these fees and expenses that Kyle just talked about. Uh, if you could just, if you get away from the legacy distribution system, easily you will save anywhere minimum probably 50 to a, over 100 basis points every year, a half percent to over 1% a year 
in additional fees and expenses is what you can expect from a typical legacy distribution system portfolio. Just in fees and expenses. And and know that it is highly, highly, highly unlikely that if you're in a legacy distribution system portfolio, that the person that you're speaking with is not the decision maker of that portfolio. And if that's important to you, then you're with the wrong firm. I would say one other thing, Jeff, before we get to the top of the hour, is if Look Look at your statements from 2022 at the end of 2022 and the end of 2023. And if your assets, your asset allocation, the investments that you own are pretty much identical, that's just another telltale sign that you're not being actively managed and it's just the passive strategy that we've been talking about for years here on the Money Wise program. With that, we're coming up to the top of our break. Before we go to the break and go into the news, I want to wish everyone a happy and safe New Year's. And with that, you're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Money Wise guys will be back after the news. All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on Money Wise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We've got my father, John, my brother, Jeff, and I am your host, Kyle Davidson, and we are diving in to the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program. Now, if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at DavidsonCap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday, you can reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the MoneyWise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. If you missed the first hour of Money Wise, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Click on the radio show link where you can listen to today's show as well as past Money Wise programs. You can also subscribe to our iTunes feed by clicking on the blue note in the upper right-hand corner of our homepage at davidsoncap.com. Thank you, Jeff. You're welcome. Well, as we like to do in most of the second hours... Uh, of every weekend's Money Wise program is going to investor education. And there was a great quiz that came out in the Wall Street Journal that I, I think it's fantastic for investor education. I think it's a, it's a great way to really get all of our listeners to be thinking about their retirement if they're planning. And, and of course, everyone's working towards retirement or is possibly currently in retirement. And so, Jeff, I know you and I wanted to focus a lot of this second hour um, going into this quiz because I think it's just chalked full of a lot of great information. And, you know, as we get started, you know, what what if before you retired you had to pass a test first, kind of like a driver's test, you know, something that gauges how much you know about savings targets, medical bills, estate planning, and a few other fundamental issues, because I guess it's kind of like getting your high school diploma. Maybe we call this this is the way you get your retirement diploma. Is you have to you have to get at least a passing grade. And we'll I guess we'll, we'll go with seventy five percent. Seventy five percent is passing grade on this quiz. So I think we just kick it off with question number one. 
Now, research by Fidelity Investments recommends that workers should aim to save what multiple of their ending annual salary at age 67 in order to meet basic income needs in retirement? Now, this question has been We've heard so many different, is it four times, is it five times, is it ten times? Now, in this quiz, we have four potential answers to that question. A is four times salary, B is six times the salary, C is eight times the salary, or D, ten times your annual salary at age 67 in order to meet basic income needs in retirement. And the answer to that question is answer C. Eight times your current salary. Now, the math is based in part on a worker beginning to save at age 25 and living to 92 years old. So a household with an annual income of $100,000 will need a minimum of $800,000 to meet basic income needs in retirement. But there is a big but here. There's always a catch. (laughs) This is the catch. This is a conservative estimate according to the National Institute on Retirement Security. By contrast, though, Aon Hewitt, which is a human resource consulting firm, estimated that 11 times salary is needed at age 65. So in that same example, you would need $1.1 million in order to meet your basic income needs if you were to retire at age 67. These numbers to me, I, I must say, and I know you guys deal with it more on a day-to-day basis, but these numbers are pretty absurdly large, honestly. $800,000. Well, think about $800,000. Yeah. Now, remember, when when we started working, and I'm from this group, we thought you were doing well if you made $10,000 a year back in the late 60s. It's called inflation, Papa Son. I, I know that, but, but, but when you see this number... Uh, $800,000, I, I, I don't know what the percentage would be of people that actually would have saved this for my generation, but it's got to be a lot smaller than what these numbers show in the survey. And so I guess what I'm saying is I wish sometimes we wouldn't throw a number out quite that. I mean, that's just a absurdly intimidating number. Well, remember, the part of this quiz is to set goals for oneself, and that's and that's one of the biggest problems that Americans face and pre-retirees face in this day and age is paying themselves first and preparing for retirement. That's why quizzes like this, that's why we do these educational hours on the Money Wise program like we do, is to get people to start thinking in terms of their retirement, and have I saved enough? Am I doing enough towards my retirement? Uh, and if I'm not, I need to really get on the ball. But don't think that if you're age 55 and you've saved very, very little, that your retirement's completely shot. I mean, again, you have to get on it. I'm going to have to somewhat agree with Dad, and I'm going to just throw out a couple of examples. Our grandparents... Our grandparents didn't have eight hundred thousand dollars when they retired, and they they lived. actually actually my 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 grandfather probably did have well, eight hundred thousand. But but, I, but I'm retired. thinking about your parents, yes, and no, mom no, and mom's no, parents. No, I'm, th- no, I'm, I'm no, talking about true. here in the last twenty five years. Yes, yes, no, that's true. And they had a, and they had a great retirement. I think what what I, what Dad and I are kind of maybe headed in the direction here, Kyle is. 
I, with, I think with, this no, number no, no, scares no, no, people. Well, I, and it does. It is a scary number. It, it, it is used to scare people to get them to think about. But, their but we've also we've also seen a, a movement from the fin, the legacy distribution system, the financial legacy distribution system, to say that investors should use a maximum withdrawal rate of what only four percent per year. And we think that that's awfully low, and we think the reason they set it at 4% is, one, so that they can continue to collect their high fees and expenses, and two, to keep the bar as low as possible, to keep as much money on their on their in their care and control, if you will, so they can keep their high fees and expenses. And maybe this is another way of saying, okay, we can keep, we get people to save more money by putting this kind of information out so that we can, again, collect more fees and expenses from folks. Okay. So question number two. A popular rule of thumb states that retirees will need 70 to 80% of their pre-retirement income in later life. Some of the best research into replacement ratios by Aon Hewitt and Georgia State University have found that a good benchmark is A, 65%, B, 75%, C, 85%, or D, 95%. Now, the answer is C, 85%. This is one case where the rule of thumb isn't far off the mark. In its own study of replacement ratios, the Social Security Administration has noted that households typically need less income later in life because income taxes are lower, People no longer need to save for retirement, and work-related expenses are reduced or completely eliminated. That said, the best way to identify one's replacement ratio is to draw up a detailed budget for later life, unfortunately. Well, with that, we're going to take another commercial break. When we come back, we'll be continuing this quiz. Think you're ready to retire, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after the break. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or receive a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906 0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And all emails can be sent to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So before we went to the last commercial break, I was on uh, question number two of the quiz, kind of what is the rule of thumb of how much income you need to replace in retirement, and the answer was uh, 85% of your current income would need to be replaced in retirement, Dad. I know that uh, there was something you wanted to add to that figure. Well, well, again, I think this number is too high. I think it's a scary number, and I, you know, when they throw out these big numbers like this, I don't know that this motivates people. It's almost like people throw their hands up because you think it's too overwhelming. It's just too overwhelming. Now, this would be different if this if we did a quiz for twenty eight year old people after they've been out in the world. I mean, this no, is, I agree. This, this is who should be taking the quiz. So, in high school, maybe, and you know, in a high school finance class, which unfortunately they don't teach in high school anymore, uh, you know, personal finance class, or teach it freshman finance basics one hundred and one should be a prerequisite course that you have to take as part of your general studies in your first two years in college. Right. This would be right. a great quiz. Let's to take. flash back. I'm in the you know I'm right in front of the baby boomers. So when I get into the corporate world there in the late 60s and get into it heavy in the 70s, we have a pension plan. 
I'm not contributing to this pension plan. The old defined benefit plan. And, and I'm going to have this pension plan at age 65. You know, and every year I get a statement showing me what it is. But the problem was every two or three years I'm changing jobs. And so I end up with no retirement until we finally come out with a 401K. And so now we do have a situation where young people can carry this 401k with them wherever they go. Wherever they go. And but, so, but they have to participate. But they have to participate. And so what I'm saying is some of this throwing out these big numbers, I, I fear that most of the people, the baby boomers, are the first 10 years of the baby boomers, they're done. They were in these same plans. They didn't start their 401ks until the 80s. There's no way... In the world, they've got these kind of numbers. They just aren't going to have these kind of numbers. Not, not the majority of the people. It's almost as if these first two questions are assuming that the retirees are have kids that are still teenagers and haven't gone to college yet, and they just bought their house two years before, and they have a 28 years left on their mortgage, and they got two brand-new cars yeah. in, in the garage. You know, in the real world, most of the, most of the people who had, when they retire – their kids are out of college. Their house is probably paid off or nearly paid off, and they have two cars in the garage that are paid for. And the reason I say is because we see these folks every day, mm-hmm. and and they don't. And the, the typical retiree or person that's getting ready to retire comes to us and says, "Oh, my house is paid off. My cars are paid off. My kids are out of school. No credit card my, debt, and no credit card debt." And, and, and they and they've prepared properly. They they took the proper steps of paying themselves first. But usually, Dad, they, these folks that we see have the combination of the traditional pension, like they you're have talking both. about, and the four hundred one k. Now, you know, and what's typical is that the pensions usually about half of their retirement savings, and then the four hundred one k is the second part. So is of it, their retirement savings. is is it bad to to want to overshoot to have no, a million dollars retirement? No, no. is is it bad to want to have seventy or eighty percent of your current uh, income in retirement going up twenty years? No, that's why not why not overestimate and shoot for the stars because if you come up a little bit short, you'll still be most likely okay. But but with all this said, again, if you are in your 50s, early 50s, mid 50s, and you haven't saved that much, we're not telling you to stop saving for no, retirement. No, no. We're saying that you need to hit the pedal to the metal and save as much as you possibly can. But also, like Jeff was saying, focus on your consumer debts. Fo- you know, focus on you know reducing loans, expenses. Reducing expenses because see that's another key to having a more comfortable retirement is by lowering your overhead. And the lower your overhead and the more money you've saved and the cheaper your cost of living is, the further your money is going to last. And one other thing that was in here that I hear you talk about all the time to people thinking about retirement is getting this budget, sitting down with your spouse or your significant other and setting these budgets out and seeing really what are you going to need. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, nobody really knows what they're going to need 15 years from now. But I always say take like the last six, maybe eight months and average it and just see what you're spending. But I think also it's an exercise of opening your eyes up to how much you actually are spending. Because I think, Dad, some folks don't really pay that much attention. You know, I can tell you I budget with, with my wife like a maniac. I am a budget maniac, and I'm constantly on top of what my free cash flow is, what money's coming in and out of the door, keeping track of all of that to the penny. And I've been 
and I've been, uh, you know, blessed to have a wife that does it exactly the way that I do it, and so it makes our our house a very happy home because we never have to argue about budgets or money ever, which is nice. So, question number three. Question number three. Jeff. What percentage of surveyed workers aged fifty-five and above said they or their spouse? have tried to calculate how much they will need to save to live comfortably in retirement. A, 34%, B, 44%, C, 54%, or D, 64%. And the correct answer is C. Only about half of workers approaching retirement have done a savings needs calculation, according to the Employee Benefit Research Institute. One encouraging development is that that figure from January of the beginning of the year is up forty two. It was up from forty two percent in two thousand and three. So, the good news is is that more people are taking the bull by the horns, if you will, mm-hmm. and sitting down and and doing this save this this uh, savings need calculation. Well, I just think that again, this is something that everyone can do. And I hope that we're part of getting that number up. Absolutely. And, and as we've said on this show, previous shows, as many years as we've been doing it, is there's a ton of free calculators online, a ton for you to be able to project you know, what potential retirement income you need. Am I saving enough right now based on what I've currently saved and what expenses I have? Utilize the Internet for all of these free calculators. I found a website, I wish I had it written down, that has a gazillion free calculators and you can spend all day having fun with calculations and the computer program does everything for you and it's free of charge also one other thing i didn't say i think the 92 is really a ridiculously high number as far as living yes i i I don't if you look at the actuarial charts though dad right now someone age 65 they have a better than 50 percent chance to live well into their 80s yeah uh, with modern advances in medicine so uh, you can disagree with it, but I the totally statistics disagree. Are there. I think that I mean there is very few people are going to live to be ninety two. Very, very few. I would disagree with you on that, but <laughs> that's what makes this show so fun. So question number four. Among workers age fifty five plus, what percentage think they need to save quarter of a million dollars or more for retirement? And what percentage have already saved that amount or more? And the answer is 54%, about half of the 55-plus demographic thinks a nest egg of at least 250000 not including the value of their home or any pension, is needed later in life, according to the Employee Benefit Research Institute. But unfortunately, fewer than one in four, or less than 25%, have reached that goal. More sobering still is 36% of this age group report having saved less than $10,000. So here's where I'm coming from. We throw out a number of 800000 in question number one. We come back here on question number four, and we're saying... But that's 800000 based on a $100,000 household income, Dad. So if you uh, make okay, $50,000, it's $400,000. But what I'm saying here is we, we can't even get more than one in four people to have $250,000. I know. That's why we're doing this survey, to no. really get people to start thinking. And it's kind of a, not, I don't want to say scare tactic, but it kind of is to, to, to wake people up that maybe are not on that savings bandwagon. Well, see, and, and debt reduction bandwagon. A quarter of a million dollars sounds like a lot of money until you think you're going to live 18 years plus plus. 
past the age of 65. All of a sudden, you put 20 years into $250,000. That's not a lot of that's money. That's about 12500 a year. Yeah. That's not, that's, you're not going to be on it's any a grand needs. a month. Yeah, that's not going to get you anywhere. So th- that's, why, that's why when we're talking these numbers, this is the more sobering number to me. I mean, see, the 800 number just goes over my head. What I want to focus on and what our listeners will focus on is a lot of people think $250,000 is a lot of money for retirement. It's not. Not if you live 15, 20 years in it retirement. It is not. And yet, it is a quarter million dollars, which ain't hey. No, so, no, it's not. And so you've got to think in terms of the budget. You've got to think in terms of your how many years you're, you think you're going to live. You've got to watch your actuarials and see where they are, and you have to plan accordingly. You think people are going to live to be in their 90s. No, 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 no. They're statistically, I mean, these are I'm statistics just, I'm spouting. I'm just saying 250 is woefully short if you're living to be 92. No, that that's that's absolutely true. And only one in four have got that number. That's well, no, and, and what's what's even worse though? This is thirty six percent of of age fifty five plus. Thirty six percent of this group have reported to have saved less than ten thousand dollars. Now that that is a sobering statistic. Well, we're coming to the bottom of the hour, so we're going to take the break. Going to the news. When we come back, we'll be continuing. So you think you're ready to retire quiz, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Money Wise guys will be back after the news. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday, you could reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906 zero zero seven zero or toll free at one eight hundred two seven five two one six two and if you'd like to send us an email you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com so we're continuing the quiz that came out of the wall street journal think you're ready to retire that's the title of the uh, of the article in the quiz, and we've gotten to question number five. Now, question number five is: What is the average age at which current retirees say they actually retired, and what is the expected retirement age of current workers? Now, the answer, according to the Gallup poll published in May, found that the average retiree stopped working at age 61, and that's up from 57 in 1993, and the average worker currently expects to retire at age 66, up from age 60 in 1995. Giving your nest egg a boost isn't the only benefit from delaying retirement. Gallup also found that individuals age 60 to 69 who work have slightly better emotional health than those who don't work. I think since 2008, I have been making the statement that I thought that the re- one of the reasons why uh, unemployment, the unemployment rate seems to be staying at a higher level than it might, might have been in uh, recoveries past, if you will, is because of this, is because of the average worker working longer. I like the way that you put it, like a domino effect. That yeah, last yeah. domino hasn't fallen I, I, I off. I think he's right on it. I think he's because, right on it. Because if we've, got, if we've got 36% of the 55-plus age demographic that have saved less than $10,000 for retirement, 
how can they actually retire? The answer is that they can't. Unless they can live strictly off of Social Social Security. Security. Well, and you can't start taking Social Security. You're 62, and you're saying the number right now is 61. And for for me, it's 65. Well, what I, I mean, what what was what was amazing though, I think, in this last question though, is that the average age of current retirees, they stopped at sixty one. They Which retired at sixty one before they before could get, they could get, get Social, Social Security. Security, and now and now workers are currently thinking about age 66. I mean, I which think... Would, it, which would I, be after the majority of them start being able to collect. And here's security. something else that's interesting about this statistic. Remember now that the people that are in and around my age didn't get a 401k until the 80s. So they worked 10, 12, 14 years before a 401k even existed. That's true. And, and, and really, the IRAs had not been around that long. And so mm-hmm. what you're seeing here is that the people who have actually retired are those few people that stayed with a corporation, did not job switch, and the corporation exists. You know, in my case, almost every, you know, corporation I work for is no longer in business. And their pensions had to get turned over to the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, and those folks have enough unfunded liabilities to handle strictly from the airline industry alone. So I find it interesting that that my age group that's retired, they said that they retired at age... 61. So that tells me that they were a government worker, they were in the military, uh, they, they had some type of public service, or they were fortunate enough to have worked for a corporation that stayed in business and they didn't job switch. Number six, what percentage of surveyed workers say they plan to continue working for pay in later life, and what percentage of current retirees say they have worked for pay? And the answer to that is it's among the biggest disconnects in retirement planning. The large number of current workers who anticipate earning a paycheck in later life and the relatively small percentage of retirees who actually have done so, 69% plan to work later, uh, plan to work in retirement, while 25% have worked for uh, say they have worked for pay in in retirement. So I mean that when sixty nine percent are planning to work in retirement, but in actuality only twenty five percent do. So if you think, well, I haven't done a great job saving for my retirement. When I finally retire, I'll go get a part time side job and, and earn money that way. Well, this this survey has found out that a lot of people plan to do that. But very few actually go out and do it. Number seven, what percentage of U.S. households are at risk of not having enough savings to maintain their living standards in retirement? Now, A, 33%, B, 43%, C, 53%, or D, 63%. Now, the answer is C, 53%. And that figure has climbed nine percentage points between 2007 and 2010, according to the National Retirement Risk Index. Now, among the reasons for the increase are the bursting of the housing bubble, falling interest rates, and the gradual increase in Social Security's full retirement age. And the approved, if painful, solution for reducing that risk is save more, reduce expenses. So we're just talking about and hang on to your current job for as long as possible. But see, this number is too low. We just said only one in four is saving two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So then how? No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. One in four. So how could only fifty three? How is it that fifty three percent 
have enough savings. That can't be. The number should be 26, 25. This number is not consistent with the other number. Well, you're going to have to call the National no, Retirement no. Risk Index what at the I, Center what, what for I'm Retirement saying. Research and tell them that. But what I'm saying, these are two separate studies. This is not done by the same people. And what I'm saying here is when you start looking at these different studies, everyone has different answers. they got different numbers. And what we see, because we are on the front lines, what we're seeing is that we're seeing the few. We're seeing that one in four that has saved, mm-hmm. that has got this money. But you've got this other group that are relying on Social Security, and we can't even get our politicians to discuss fixing it. That's right. And, and there's enough. Uh, and, and, and now we're, we're not embarked. Even get into politics. Now we're embarked on the greatest adventure any of us has seen since Medicare in the 60s, and that's now the Affordable Care Act, which it could be the biggest misnamed act in the history of this country. You mean it should be called the Unaffordable, Unaffordable Care Act? Health Act. I mean, we don't know. <laughs> and so we're on this. We're right on the cusp of this new horizon which is the most important thing for seniors. Now, they tell us as seniors that our Medicare is, is going to stay the same. Well, excuse me if all of a sudden I'm not concerned because I heard the president say, if you want to keep your health care, you can. And now we've learned this week that's not true. Only if your plan was in existence prior to the 2010 deadline. So moving on to question number eight. If you retire at age 65, what percentage of your life can you expect to live in retirement? And, Dad, you kind of alluded to this yeah, a this, few segments ago. Yeah. Let me get to the answer. Hold hold your horses there. Hold my water. <laughs> 14%, B, 17%, C, 20%, or D, 23%. And the answer is D, 23%. The average life expectancy for a 65-year-old is 19.1 years, which means the average American will spend close to one quarter of his or her life in retirement. Again, the key as to why you have to save for retirement. And remember, we now have that giant rat that's gone through the snake that's coming out with the baby boomers that has skewed all of the numbers all my life in every day, how many more are retiring? And we're getting ready to change health care for everyone in the country. You lost me with the rat through no, the I'm snake. Just, I'm <laughs> saying the baby boomers was this giant group of population okay. uh-huh. that skewed schooling. Then it skewed housing. And it's going to skew Social Security it, it's benefits It's going to skew whatnot. entitlements. Yep. And what are we doing at the one time we shouldn't be fooling with this? We've just got ourselves into the health care situation. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm saying is that while these guys are up there screwing around with the budget ceilings and everything else, as we talked about on show number one back in November 2005, entitlement tsunami wave continues to approach the Poseidon. Okay, so question number nine. A 65-year-old couple retires this year in 2013, how much money will they need to cover medical expenses throughout their retirement? A, $100,000, B, $140,000, C, $180,000, or D, $220,000? Now, this number will probably shock some of our listeners. The answer is D. The figure from Fidelity Investments is actually down 8% from projections in 2012. So you'll need $220,000 
to cover medical expenses throughout your retirement. Now, the re- but the remaining significantly larger than most. Now, this number is is significantly larger than most than most consumers estimate. And a Fidelity poll of pre-retirees age fifty-five to sixty-four found that nearly forty-eight percent believe that they will only need fifty thousand dollars to pay health care costs in retirement. What's also problematic is that the estimated $220,000 doesn't include the possible cost of over-the-counter medication, most dental services, and long-term care. See, to me, this is the largest threat to the baby boomers, and they don't even understand Medical it. costs. Medical costs. Health care. And you guys, from time to time, kind of wade into you know what I and your mother have dealt with here for a few years, and that is the cost, current cost of <clears throat> medical care, like a visit to a emergency room, and what that can cost two hundred thousand dollars, two hundred twenty thousand uh, dollars. That number is too low. Whatever that number is, I'd believe eight hundred thousand before I'd believe two hundred thousand, <laughs> because the truth is. We don't know what that number is. Well, and we know that medical costs are spiraling way out of control, and the government is doing nothing to get control of them. With that, we're going to take another commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after the break. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday, you could reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So in our last segment of this weekend's uh, Money Wise program, we want to wrap up. So you think you're ready to retire quiz from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, getting to question 10, what percentage of participants in defined contribution savings plans, that includes 401Ks, contribute the maximum amount allowed each year? A, 5%, B, 15%, C, 25%, or D, 35%. Now, this might be shocking. This the, is easy. Yeah, it actually might not be shocking, I should say. The answer is A, 5%. Only 1 in 20 savings plan participants contribute the maximum amount allowed annually, which is currently $17,500, according to a survey by the Government Accountability Office. A Vanguard study published in June found that only 11% of participants in Vanguard-administered plans saved the maximum in 2012, and only 15% of those eligible took advantage of the catch-up contribution provision, which is an additional $5,500 you can save on top of $17,500 for anyone over the age of 50. So, I mean, num- that's, that's, that's shockingly been, you know, low. Well, well we, have been on, we have been on for a long time talking about low, participa- low participation rates in 401Ks. So you compound been, low participation with low contribution well, on lo- top lo- of that. Yeah, and you, when you add those two together... Then you're then it's very easy to see how someone how we have what was it thirty some odd thirty six percent of fifty five uh, folks over fifty five years of age having reported saving less than ten thousand dollars. That's right. So if you have a four hundred one k plan available to you as an employee, participate. Question number eleven of the quiz: 
a household age 65 is living on $120,000 a year. And now at 3% inflation, how much money would that household need at age 75 and at age 85? And I can answer that okay, question, Jeff. At age 75 with 3% inflation, you would need $161,000. And at age 85, you would need $217,000. And this is a topic that we've talked about on this show time and time again, how many investors are not paying attention to monetary inflation while they're continuing to accept extremely low returns in this low interest rate environment by having high allocations to fixed income on in their portfolios that that's right and that inflation is eroding purchasing power let me put it in a simpler way $5000 grocery bill today would cost over $9000 in 20 years and i used to use also that car example what your 67 fastback cost Versus what the average cost uh, of a car? $3,600. Yeah, what is the average cost of a Mustang today? Well over $30,000. That's inflation. Uh, question number 12. What percentage of households age 65 through 74 carry housing debt and credit card debt? The answer is 41% carry housing debt and 32% carry credit card debt. Now, this housing figure is from 2010 and is up from 25% in 1992, says the Employee Benefit Research Institute, and the credit card figure is unchanged over that period. The median value of mortgage debt for a household age 65 to 74 in 2010 was $70,000, according to AARP, and that is up from $15,400 in 1989. Question number 13 from the quiz. What percentage of workers have obtained investment advice from a professional financial advisor who is paid through either fees or commission? Now, the, the four options we have are A, 13%, B, 23%, C, 33%, or D, 43%. Now, the answer is B. Only 23% of workers have obtained investment advice from a professional financial advisor. And of those, 41% said they followed most of the advice. About a quarter said they followed all of it. The other quarter said they followed some of it. And if you're not just looking to get advice and actually looking to get professional management, the one thing that we always try to teach on the Money Wise program is that if you do not want to be making the day-to-day investment decisions on your retirement nesting, you need to find a competent and experienced registered investment advisor that's completely fee-based, that will be able to take that discretionary control, that will be sitting on that wall to be making the day-to-day decisions with your retirement nest egg. So to summarize from this entire quiz, um, it's a lot of great information. Uh, Hopefully it's information that is a wake-up call for some people. Uh, If you're a a younger, longer, if you're a younger listener to the Money Wise program, hopefully this provided you some education and maybe motivated you to get on the ball to, as we've always said on this program, to pay yourself first. But if you're in your 50s, and you're part of that 36% that have saved less than $10,000, don't think that it, you're completely hopeless to retire. You have time. You have to start yeah. saving. You have to start investing. Retirement saving is not a race. It's a marathon. That's right. And those who have you know, a lot more time to run that marathon are going to be the ones 
th- that are I think in in the end are going to have a much better retirement and and be much more comfortable. Now that's not to say for those for those of us that are list that are listening to our show that might be in that thirty six percent that have saved less than ten thousand dollars. It's never too late to get started. It's never too late to get motivated. It's never too late to train for for that marathon. I, I, I like is time, that. Is time is time on your side? Well, you know you you've time is what it is. It is what it is, as they say. But that doesn't mean you should just give up. Sit on your hands and, and not at least make the effort to participate in that 401k that you have at, have at work and increase your contributions. Or if you've been to a many, like we, we continue to see many investors that have been sitting on the sidelines when it comes to not, having, participating. not participating in the, in the stock side of the market, not having some of their portfolio invested in stocks, still sitting in cash, still sitting in high allocations to fixed income. It's never too late to, to start to make a change. And, and, you know, retirement planning would be extremely easy if all of us were given a piece of paper the day we were born that said the day that we were going to be leaving this earth. Retirement planning would be very, very easy. Unfortunately, none of us know when our last day on this earth is going to be. And so the best thing to do is to be prepared and to plan. That's absolutely the key, and pay yourself first, and constantly be thinking about that prize, kind of like Jeff said, that marathon. There's a finish line at the end of that marathon. It's a long race, but you will eventually get to that finish line, and so you have to prepare and plan and for so it. And so if you're not sure where you're at in your marathon, if you think you need to be saving more, if you're not if you're not sure what you own in, 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 in retirement, if you want to get a... a, a and look at your retirement plan and see if am I invested in the right securities? You know, give give us a call at Davidson Capital Management. We'll be happy to do a free portfolio review and analysis. Okay. And you can reach us at nine zero six zero zero seven zero or toll free at one eight hundred two seven five two one six two. And with that, we'd like to thank everyone for listening to this weekend's Money Wise program. For my father John and my brother Jeff, this is Kyle Davidson saying have a fantastic weekend and to your financial health. We will talk to you next week.